Good morning and welcome to an extended edition of Irish Voice. My name's Broderick. It's a pleasure to have you in the studio with us and uh, joining me in the studio this morning are some lovely people. Uh, good morning to you, Rachel. Good morning, Broderick. And uh, good morning, Stuart. Yeah, hey, good morning to you all there. Uh, top of the morning to you all. It's been a, a very lovely day and I hope you all remembered that... Uh, Today is the uh, daylight saving, so you have to turn your clocks back, and uh, that's all going oh, on. Oh, yes, I think I remembered. You remembered that? No, I think so. That was, that was back, or was it forward? Uh, forward, or back. No, we no you, you put it forward at 2 a.m., and then you put it back at 3 a.m. Again. And, uh, yeah, and that, that works out with the daylight savings. All right. Yeah, I, I think it's all right. Uh, and then we go from there, and uh, it should all be fine with that one. Uh, but, oh... Hold on, I can, I can hear something coming in there. There's some music or something. And hold on, what's, what's that noise? Can you hear that? No, I'm not getting a thing there. No, I hear it. Oh, oh. Yes, I hear that now. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Okay, you may have guessed already that um, they were pretty terrible Irish accents, <laughs> and, um, and this isn't an extended edition of the Irish voice, but we do thank them for their show beforehand. Today, it's April 1, which is, of course, April Fool's Day. So we're going to have a bit of fun today on Fuzzy Logic. That was our first prank for the day. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, <laughs> we certainly had fun putting on those Irish accents. I think I heard a bit of Scottish coming through yeah, in yours, Roderick, at one I, point. I, I need to practice a bit more. I could, I could smell shortbread. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Generic Celtic, I think, will go <laughs> But look, we are very pleased to join you today, and we're going to have a lot of fun this episode, um, doing a bit of science, but with a bit of a difference. Uh, so we'll get into that in just a moment, but we should introduce ourselves. As I said before, my name is Broderick, um, and it's a pleasure to be here with you again, and joining me in the studio is Rachel. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, Brod. And um, joining me also on the other side is Stuart. Morning, Stuart. Morning, Brod. Morning, listeners. Fantastic. Well, it's good to have you all here, because we are doing April Fools, and normally we'd start off with uh, a bit of this day in science, what's happened on this day in history. Um, but we thought, being April 1, we might stick to a bit of an April Fool's theme uh, and some scientific April Fool's Day pranks. Uh, what's happened in April Fool's history, Rachel? Yes, well, this was a very fun thing to research, I must say. <laughs> uh, so we've got our very first April Fool's Day prank that is noteworthy here on today. In 1957, so 1957, BBC Fools the Nation. Uh, so the BBC reported that due to... Um, a mild uh, winter in Switzerland, they were actually able to grow spaghetti crops. Now, in this time, apparently spaghetti was still thought of as um, a exotic delicacy um, in England. And so people were really excited to know that you could just grow your own spaghetti. And the BBC actually did get quite a few calls from people wondering how they could grow their own spaghetti at home. Something very similar to that actually was run here in Australia on that, that they were worried about the spaghetti worm which is the thing which actually grows down the middle of the spaghetti and leaves the hole in there. <laughs> that there'd been a blight on the spaghetti worm and that all of the spaghetti after that was going to be solid. Oh, oh That's one of, one of my favourite ones. I think only, only topped by the exploding Chico Roll debacle in the, in the 70s. That was put down to uh, radioactive contamination of, uh, of cabbage. <laughs> to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if those things are still radioactive. Yes. <laughs> they, they'd at least survive a big nuclear blast, I reckon. All right. Well, also, uh, in 1962, on April Fool's Day, uh, there was only one TV channel in Sweden, uh, and it broadcast in black and white, but on the 1st April, uh, the station's technical expert, Kjell Stansson, um, appeared on the news to announce that thanks to a new technology, viewers could convert their existing sets to display colour reception. All they had to do was to pull a nylon stocking over their TV screen. <laughs> and Stenson proceeded to demonstrate the process, and thousands of people were taken in. Um, it wasn't until eight years later that actually on April 1st in 1970, they produced real colour television in Sweden. Um, I suppose that could have some effect, couldn't it, the nylon stocking? Because I know if you put nylon so in front now, it, it diffracts the light. Diffract the light, you yeah. might be able to get a bit of colour. I, <laughs> I, I still remember getting a beating from my father 
uh, on there for telling him that I saw colour on our TV. It was a black and white TV, <laughs> and it's probably one of those pivotal events that actually sort of pushed me into a world of science on that. So I was watching Julius Bloody Son de Miller on, on the TV, <laughs> yeah. and uh, he had something, uh, an, an optical illusion called Benham's disc, rotating black and white disc works on a black and white TV, spins around quickly and it forms um, or allows the retina to actually generate the perception of seeing colour. So looking at oh, a black wow. and white TV with a rotating black and white disc, my mother and I saw colour on our black and white television set. My father came home at the end of the end of the week and so I said, we saw colour on the TV and said, you stupid boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so be careful, this might be true. Yeah. Mm, amazing, Ooh. yeah. I have to try that one sometime. <laughs> Don't put a magnet on your TV screen, though. No, that's the other one you can't do. Yes, I nearly did that once, too, but I got told off before I did it. You get colourful language. (laughs) (laughs) Well, another one in 76, uh, the BBC Radio again. Wow, they have a good sense of humour. British, don't they? Um, uh, The British astronomer Patrick Moore announced that at 9.47 on April the 1st, a -a once-in-a-lifetime event would occur when... um, Planet would, uh, the planet Pluto, it was a planet at the time, would pass beyond Jupiter and temporarily cause a gravitational alignment that would counteract and lessen Earth's gravity. So it was reported that if you jumped at the exact moment at 9.47, you would feel a strange floating sensation. So 9.47 came around and 9.48 came around and there was a lot of phone calls about people saying that they had not actually felt this strange effect. So, yeah, there's another one from the BBC. <laughs> I think they worked it out eventually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, for those that listened in last week, this next one will horrify uh, Jamos and Dennis, who are on talking about maths on this show the week before, because in 1998... Uh, the New Mexicans for Science and Reason newsletter reported that the state of Alabama had proposed to round off pi from 3.14 to the biblical 3. 3. And this caused huge outrage <laughs> back in 98. Um, and I'm sure it would cause lots of outrage now, but one of those fantastic hoaxes. <laughs> and so the next one we have is from 2008, so 10 years later. Um, BBC again. So the BBC announced that on their Miracles of Nature TV series, um, and this episode was to air on April 1st, would be showing flying penguins, that they'd been spent so many months down there in um, the Antarctic, and they'd seen suddenly a whole bunch of flying penguins. I think they were the Adelie, Adelie uh, penguins? The Adelie. Yep. Adelie, yeah. Uh, had seen them taking off and flying to more tropical climates for the winter. And they had these beautiful images that look really quite realistic. And um, so this was narrated by Terry Jones and explaining how they, uh, the, all the penguins took off and spend the winter basking in the tropical sun, flying all together. There's a big flock <laughs> up north. And it does look quite convincing, the footage. It's Very nice. Mm, so there's a follow-up about how they actually made the effects. Yeah, we'll have to post that video on the Fuzzy Facebook page, I think, so people can have a look at these amazing flying penguins. <laughs> look pretty crazy. It's a lot of work into the one prank for that one, I think. Yeah. All right, well, we should get into our big stories for the day. Um, and what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be telling you some scientific stories. Um, but the only thing is that being April Fool's, they're not just going to be normal stories. They're going to be a little bit uh, made up. Um, well, only only two out of the three are going to be made up, and the third one is going to be a real science story. And your job, listeners, today is to guess which of these stories are true. Um, so it sounds pretty easy. And I've actually got, uh, for our regular listeners, you might know Rod. Rod, unfortunately, couldn't make it today, but he was so keen to be involved that he's pre-recorded a couple for us. And so I'm going to play Rod's three stories and uh, we're going to have to try and see if we can guess which one is the real story. So let's have a listen to story number one. Hi, Rod here for a special edition of Fuzzy Logic, and today being the 1st of April, well, say no more, but here's some story that we've worked very hard to research for you. They might be entirely true, but let's see. Scientists have recovered remains from the Burgess shales of an animal they have dubbed the griffin. It's a crocodile-like reptilian with what looks like a pair of proto-dorsal wings, that is, wings on its back. And they speculate that these were early forms of a cooling device, which later evolved into wings. They speculate that early humans encountered these creatures, which then became the origin of the griffin legend. All right. A griffin. 
real a real fossilized griffin. Do you reckon that's that's true or false? I, was, I think I saw a fossilized griffin in the footpath just outside the building here. <laughs> <laughs> outside the griffin center. That's there was right. Something definitely in the ground. It looked like uh, some some basalt or something there. Okay. Yeah. Unlikely yeah, to fossilize in basalt, mm. but. I mean, possibly I'm thinking here it's more along the lines of the, the Simpsons-style prank where they found the the uh, angel, which was actually made by the shopping centre. But I, I always like Lisa's proposal that a man got bitten on the arm by two fish <laughs> and then, <laughs> then lay there and died with the fish skeleton on his arms, looking just like wings. I think so. Maybe that's what happened to this griffin. Well, you guys sound both, yeah, pretty sceptical. I'm going to say, yeah, no, it's... The biggest sceptical um, sceptical flag, I think, in that is just sort of rep- reptiles in the times of the Burgess Shale. Uh, uh, on there. Yeah, it's a bit uh, early for a reptile. Uh, oh, clever. Right. I was going to say evolution works in mysterious ways, but then you just debunked <laughs> that with science. <laughs> well, I don't, I, you know, they weren't even clear chordates at that stage on there. So. <laughs> ah, interesting. All right. Well, let's go along to number two here and uh, see if we can pick the flaws in this one. Rats. Can rats laugh? Rats can laugh and seem to enjoy it. Researchers have recorded the sounds and images of rats being tickled and emitting gleeful chirps. These are ultrasonic tones five times higher than humans can hear. The rats likely keep their chuckles to supersonic levels to avoid being detected by potential predators. And they have even been observed following researchers' hands because they want more. Laughing rats. Hmm. Well, I used to keep mice, and I don't remember them ever being able to be tickled. <laughs> You'd need very small fingers to tickle a mouse, though. Perhaps that's why well, they worked on rats. Tiny bird feathers. What's a thought? Yeah, mm. possibly. And uh, not being able to be detected by predators. Uh, that's a bit well, I mean, it's, it's evolutionary, uh, an evolutionary advantage if you can communicate without other people hearing you. <laughs> I'm just sort of wondering about all these bats sort of you know, flying up and down the forest looking for, for rat parties. <laughs> <laughs> just little stand-up comedy arenas yeah, where they're all there, yeah, yeah, cracking jokes. Bang, so then they're <laughs> taken out by a phantom bat. <laughs> Quite a possibility. <laughs> all right, we've got two more, so let's have a listen to this one. Gherkins? Researchers have fingered gherkins as another potential cause of cancer. Why this might be the case is still uncertain, but scientists speculate that it's caused by the acid action of vinegar on a combination of folate and vitamin K, which liberate free radicals, a proven carcinogen. Well, it sounds very scientific, that one. Yeah. Uh, but is it? I don't know. It's got the, it's got the ring of truthiness. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. A bit of vitamin K and folate. I mean, I don't even know what makes up vitamin K and folate. Yeah. Where do we get vitamin K from? I, I think the Swiss Vitamin Institute. Ah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> They've got everything from A to Z, I reckon. Yeah, there. I think they're yeah. actually going into hexadecimal now just to get all the different vitamins. <laughs> Right, so possibilities there. Yeah. Plus it yeah. sounds reasonably Thanks. scientific. And don't they find a new thing that gives you cancer every day? So true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it didn't mention didn't mention the dosage though. Was it two hundred kilos of gherkin or what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I always thought if you ate enough gherkins, you'd just be very well preserved inside, and so you wouldn't age. Or you could glow if they ran a current through. <laughs> <laughs> that, that too. That too. All right, one more. Let's have a listen and see if we can work this one out. Babies. Babies in the womb exposed to the voices of men have been shown to more readily form attachments to those men after birth. Mm. Like Mozart? Not much. What, Mozart, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, there's the Mozart for your mind and that sort yeah. of things, but I don't know, Beethoven for babies and... But voice recognition, are they that good, babies? <laughs> I don't know, probably. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah, it feels think... good. Mm. <laughs> mm. All right, well, we're going to have to make a decision here. <laughs> okay. Stuart, Rachel, we've got the griffin, the fossilised griffin been found, uh, the rats laughing, gherkins uh, causing cancer, or babies recognising their father's voice. Which story do we think is true today? Which is the one genuine scientific story. Oh, there's only one genuine. There's only one genuine one amongst all of those. (laughs) I was trying to pick two or three. No, no, no. There's only one genuine and all the rest have been made up by Rod. Oh, right. I want to go with the griffin. Just because I want to believe in griffins. No, I'm thinking thinking, um, gherkins and babies uh, on there, but that's just me. Yeah, Um, on there. I'd go uh, go the babies. 
All right. So we've got the babies from Stuart, the gherkins from Rachel. No, and I, I believe I said griffin. Griffin. Sorry. Sorry. I'm clearly not listening <laughs> well enough, am I? The griffin's a better um, story than the gherkins. <laughs> That's true. But unfortunately, you're both wrong. Aww. The answer is... Oh, it's not the rats, is it? It's the rats. <laughs> the laughing rats. Yeah. So um, this is a study done at uh, Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Uh, and, yeah, they found with the students testing the rats, the rats emitted gleeful chirps when playing, but only at ultrasonic tones five times higher than the human ear can hear. And so when they actually fixed up the ultrasonic to- um, the ultrasonic recorder um, so they could pick up those signals, they, they suddenly found these laughing rats as they got tickled. <laughs> Which is kind of a cute little image, I guess. <laughs> these these rats just happily sitting there. I mean, normally, you know, you think lab rats have a hard life. No. But no, not no. when they sit there getting tickled. No. Tickle is a form of torture, though. <laughs> well, I suppose it depends how ticklish you are, doesn't it? <laughs> on there. So we need to follow up on the mice just to see whether or not they're the serious uh, rodent. Mm. Mm, definitely. <laughs> see which are more ticklish than the others. Cardigans there with Loveful on this April Fool's Day. Welcome, fuzzy listeners, to a special Fuzzy Fools episode. We've got a few fools in the studio, including myself, um, and we're here to have a whole lot of fun with science. Uh, What we're doing today is we're presenting some stories, and uh, only one out of the three stories that each presenter has today is actually true. And so it's up to you to try and guess which of these stories is true. And uh, I'm going to kick it off today. And I've gone on a bit of a movie theme. Because quite often things that happen in movies, even though they seem quite unbelievable, actually happen in science. It's amazing. Um, and so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to list through a, uh, uh, a few different movie ones. And to start off with, I've decided to go with the Harry Potter um, series and uh, the Invisibility Cloak. Now, an invisibility cloak is a magical garment which renders whatever it covers unseeable. It may be made from hair of demiguise, a magical creature that possesses the power to become invisible. This property is used to make the wearer of the cloak invisible. It can be also formed from an ordinary travelling cloak, enchanted with an exceptionally strong disillusionment charm, or bedazzling hex. Now, of course, that's not the science. I'll just clarify that. That's from Harry Potter. (laughs) Good. We, we, can, we can stay then. You can, good, okay. So, But the, the scientific version of this actually comes from the University of Texas in Dallas and their Nanotech Institute. Uh, in 2011, they designed a bit of a carbon nanotube fashion. And uh, what this new technology, it's inspired by the same phenomena that happens with desert mirages. You know how you see things getting quite hot and you get that little wobble and it looks like water in there, but it's, it's not water. It's the oasis that we pretend to see uh, and you go diving into the sand as they do in all good cartoons. Yeah. Mm. Well, this is, this is what they're trying to do here. And what they're doing is they're heating uh, the carnivore nanotubes via electrical stimulation um, and there's a sharp temperature gradient between the cloak and the surrounding area. And this causes a st- um, the steep gradient between the two and bends light away from the wearer. Um, and bending light means it bends around the person, and so we don't see them anymore. We simply see what's behind them. It's as though they're not really there. I mean, you might sort of see a fantastic... A fantastic... No, a little fuzzy. Um, <laughs> a of course, I get fuzzy, fuzzy and fantastic confused. Yeah. A little bit of a fuzziness around the border as, as they're, they're sort of standing there. Um, but it is pretty uh, amazing. It almost looks as though they've disappeared. Uh, Now, the only problem with this is you do need to wear a thermal suit underneath um, because you need to keep the heat from the nanotubes from burning you underneath that cloak. But other than that, it's actually working pretty well as an invisibility cloak. Is it? Yeah. So there we go. How nice. How nice. You sound (laughs) sceptical, Stuart. Do you want to poke holes in my science or do you reckon that one's the right one? Not one at a time. No, we'll we'll take them. Are you going to take them all all three and then go from there? All right. Well, let's do that. Well, the next movie I've taken... um, my science from is uh, Aladdin. Aladdin. We've got the magic carpet. Okay, so you've seen that magic carpet um, down in uh, the Cave of Wonders gets rescued by Aladdin, pulled out, and they jump on it and fly away outside. Magic. Absolute magic. Um, Well, this magic carpet isn't quite as big, uh, but it comes from Princeton University in the US again, um, and it's made of plastic, and it's taking flight in a laboratory. Uh, at the moment, it's only a 10-centimetre sheet of a, a smart, transparent plastic, and it's driven by something called ripple power. 
Uh, now, what it is is waves of electrical current which drive thin pockets of air from the front to the rear underneath the carpet. Um, and the prototype has been described in uh, applied physics letters, and it moves about at speeds of about only a centimetre per second. They're working hard to get it faster, but at the moment, centimetre per second. Um, and... Uh, the creator, a uh, graduate student, Noah Jaffris, was inspired by a mathematical paper he read uh, shortly after starting his PhD studies at Princeton. What he sa- and he said, what's difficult is controlling the precise behaviour of the sheet as it deformed at high frequencies. Um, but once that's mastered, the waveform of the undulating matched the prescribed, what they, they should have, so they're matching theory with, with reality, and the wafting motions gave life to the tiny carpet. Um, and so it has to keep close to the ground at this point in time because the air is, is trapped between the sheet and the ground. But as the waves move along, it basically pumps the air out the back, giving it sort of a thrust as you push the air through underneath the carpet, the magic flying carpet. Hmm. Hmm. Yes. Yes, it may not be the only thing with air coming out the back. <laughs> <laughs> right, all right, all right. Well, if you're still not convinced, let's go to number three. Uh, this one comes from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Must which be good is, then. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, I'm going to quote from the book here uh, about Arthur Dent uh, had found a new dramatic machine which had provided him with a plastic cup filled with a liquid that was almost but not quite entirely unlike tea. The way it functioned was very interesting. When the drink button was pressed, it made an instant but highly detailed examination of the subject's taste buds, a spectroscopic examination of the subject's metabolism, and then sent tiny experimental signals down the neural pathways to the taste centres of the subject's brain to see what was likely to go down well. However, no one knew quite why it did this, because it invariably delivered a cupful of liquid that was almost, but not quite, entirely unlike tea. Now, this machine uh, comes from the Harvard University Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology. They haven't called it a neutromatic because it's not quite the same as the hitchhiker's one. Almost, but exactly not quite the same. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. This one doesn't actually test your taste buds or analyse neural pathways or your metabolism or anything like that. But it's designed to replicate drinks. And so what they've done is they've identified 142 chemicals that provide different aspects of flavour to combine to form any flavour that you can currently think of. Um, so there's a whole lot of aromatic chemicals that we taste in all the different drinks we have. Um, wine's a great example for aromatics. And, you know, when they say you get the, the oaky flavours or pineapple and berries, and there's actually chemicals they can identify to that stick to each of those flavours. Yep. Um, so, so that's that's what they've done, and they've identified a key bunch of flavours, and, and these are 142 chemicals uh, to provide that. Um, you know, and you might think 142 is not many, uh, but while our t- taste buds are quite sensitive, there's a limit to the amount of different flavours we can actually taste. Uh, the large areas of taste are sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami, or savouriness, uh, the, the MSG taste. Uh, and we can only distinguish certain levels of changes within each of these basic tastes. So by certain combinations of the 142 chemicals, you can achieve any taste possible. Now, the real breakthrough came, again with a bit of maths, when the Harvard uh, chemists teamed up with the mathematics department to provide an algorithm uh, in the identification and reproduction of certain flavours. So you're identifying flavours in one drink and trying to reproduce them using the 142 chemicals that we've got available in the others. Um, and the algorithm helps to accurately analyse any drink and recreate this in chemical form. Now, unfortunately, all these drinks are still water-based, uh, so matching texture and consistency doesn't always work, um, but it's still possible to create drinks that taste pretty much the same, uh, and you can create something that is quite and entirely like <laughs> tea. So there you go, with or without milk and sugar. It's up to you. Indeed. Right, so they're my three stories. Right. The Invisibility Cloak, the Flying Carpet, and the uh, Drink Creator. Go on, poke holes in it, guys, okay. and I'll try and defend it as best I can. All right, well, first off, mm. you know, brush um, aside the journalism of the stories, <laughs> uh, there seems to be a lot of fancy names thrown in, which I think you're using to uh, plush up the story. Oh, so okay. the second one, you uh, mentioned a mathematics paper, the... Uh, physical letters. Mm. Um, it's all good. Bor- kind of borrow some credibility. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's what he's doing there. Possibly, possibly. Yep. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think the the invisibility cloak. I'm not sure that I've heard of the carbon in the carbon stuff in the visual area. Certainly, some folk have been working on um, fiber optic um, arrangements to go and sort of effectively just you know have a fiber at the front of a front of a garment matched round to the back, so mm. that what's behind comes comes through in the front. That's what I've heard of as far as optics. What you're talking about with optics happening there is certainly being done at the moment with microwaves ah. uh, on there, and that that's exactly what they're doing to um, to improve stealth. In, ah. in certain vehicles, so they, they feature, effectively you go around with this this net of hula hoops, the conductive copper hula hoops around the object, and it literally bends the microwaves around it like a lens, puts them back the way they were when mm. they arrived at the front on there, and voila, you and disappear from the microwave. So it's it's one of those things which is you know it's, it's possible mm. on there, and certainly the last time I was tracking any of those stories. They were doing it with microwaves, but that's kind of at the centimetre. This is sort yeah, of down at the, the nanometre scale. Yeah. I don't know. Plausible. Yeah, they might be getting better. You never yeah. know. Is, they might. And can't you do anything with carbon nanotubes? That's right. They're well, the miracle. Yeah. <laughs> and there was something about the thermal properties of carbon nanotubes. There's something very special about that. Yeah, they're, they're uh, great the, conductors the, or something. Yeah, con- conductors, but I think they're very asymmetric. Um, in the in their both their electrical conductivity and in their thermal properties, mm. so conducting down is is one property, conducting across is another. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. that's that's. So what do you feel about that story then? I think it's got the ring of truthiness, but I, I, I don't. I, I'm I'm not going with it. Yeah, no. I, I'm considering that one. I, I am. I do like my carbon nanotubes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's right. that's why there's that's why there's two of us against one. Yeah. There's, right. there's, a, there's, a, there's a fighting chance we'll get it right. <laughs> yep. Flying, okay. flying carpets. Oh, flying carpets. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this was the one where you threw in all the physical letters and the mathematical papers, and this. So that made me suspicious from the first go. Uh, how likely is it to put an electrical current through something to move the air around? I think that's sort of the hard way around it, given that you know we can get magnetic levitation with um, you know superconductors and a whole lot of stuff without without that sort of problem. So I'm mm. not quite sure what the the role of the plastic is. So well, this, this is one, kind of like a manta ray you're talking about. So yeah, gonna... that's right. You don't need anything underneath, so to speak. It just uses the air to push itself along by creating a current of air by itself. Mm. Mm. Oh, they're looking so doubtful. <laughs> you're looking so doubtful at me. I am suspicious. Of you're suspicious of everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, one, one centimetre per second, I think it's pretty impressive for a 10 centimetre sheet. Yeah, no, that, that'd be all right. That'd be all right. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not going with how it works, though. I'm, I'm yeah. not, I didn't get the how it works mm. from, from all of that. So okay. we've been saying no to that one, then? I, I, yeah, I think that one flew out the yeah, window. Convinced. Okay, all right. <laughs> oh, did a double dear. barrel roll on the way. On there, yeah, yeah, just with a lot of air coming out the back. <laughs> Oh, well, that brings us to the uh, the drink dispenser. Neutramatic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just yeah. want a cup of tea now. <laughs> <laughs> a good one, though. Not a... Yeah. <laughs> and a plausible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose there would be money for research in this kind of area, yeah. I would assume. Yeah, I think, yeah, plausible. Plausible. Okay. okay. Well, we have to pick one, though, Stuart. You do. I'm going to go with the nanotubes one, I think. All right, I'll go with the neutramatic. Well, I've got a giant smile on my face at the moment because you're both wrong no. again. <laughs> oh, the um, the flying carpet is actually oh, the shit. genuine one. So all those um, fancy places that I quoted from are actually the places that this stuff is being published. Oh well, genuine um, work doing. Uh, um, they've been working two years uh, attaching sensors to every part of the material to fine-tune performance through a series of complex feedbacks, and they've actually got this undulating magic carpet happening. Um, so again, look, I promise you it's true. I'll have to post a link to it on our Facebook again, <laughs> so listeners will actually believe me. Um, Rachel and I are encouraging all of the listeners to get out there and research harder and actually find that the other two that you mentioned are also real. Yeah. Yes. Well, I like, uh, to be honest, I started... Um, if the, not, ca- oh, sorry. the carbon nanotube one is based semi on fact. Um, they have been experimenting with carbon nanotubes and they're nowhere near anything good yet. And in fact, you'd actually roast quite considerably someone underneath it. Um, but the food creator was purely out of my own head. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought... I could so do this. Yeah. <laughs> it could definitely work. <laughs> yep, so if it isn't already being done, apply for a research grant. Yes, Just get the patent in. Oh, yep. Already public disclosure. Sorry, yes. Broad. Oh, t- oh, well. We can't oh. be right all the time, can we, Stuart? Hey, I don't think anyone's checked out there. Are there any listeners in there this morning? <laughs> there right. might not have been we'll public see. disclosure. If, if I have anyone um, that starts to patent it, we'll know that someone was listening today. <laughs> 
Well, if I've got a clown to the left of me and a joker to the right, that means I'm stuck in the middle with you, listeners. <laughs> the time is 1.09 and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio. And today, Fuzzy has gone all April Fools. And uh, did I say the time was one oh nine just then? You did indeed. I did. I fooled myself. It's twelve oh nine because everyone we're... stop running. You're not late. <laughs> That's right. Or the early. clocks in the studio don't go back immediately. They have to wait until they come in on Monday to change them. Um, so it's twelve oh nine, and we're going to ignore the whole twelve o'clock April Fool's Day thing yeah. and just keep going because otherwise the show would be very boring. So I'm going to hand over to you, Stuart, and uh, you've got three stories, only one of which is true. Something like that, something mm. like that. And we're talking about being surrounded by fools on there on April Fool's Day. I'm just sort of, you know, interesting. It's probably the reason I'm here today. My father's birthday is today, turning 18. He's an April Fool. <laughs> oh, wow. My son, who's sort of, you know, hanging around outside the glass out there at the moment, his birthday, April Fool, he's turning 20 on there, so I'm literally surrounded by fools. <laughs> <laughs> On there. All right, some um, some some interesting stories turned up with uh, with research for the for the show today, and it's really mm-hmm. a bit hard to know where to where to start. Um, right. But we'll be we'll be quick with with these because you don't have to draw it out uh, to, uh, to to make a good a good point. <laughs> a lot of lot of lot of talking these days about energy. We're all worried about energy. A lot of discussions about uh, nuclear safety uh, and the rest of those. Um, we have a uh, a story coming in here from the uh, from the from the plausibly-sounding Monami Science Research Centre <laughs> on there. Now, of course, right. you'd expect that the Monami uh, Research Centre would be somewhere in, in Paris, but in fact it's, uh, it's not. It's actually located in Uda Pradesh on there. So very interesting. One of the sort of... Um, uh, one of the, uh, the, the centres associated with the World Nuclear Association on there, headquartered out of Mongolia. Uh, on there, um, so I'm, I'm sorry, that's just dropped it down, <laughs> down in my book. <laughs> now, because of because of of course, naturally, the, the world's interest in these sorts of things and the, the criticality of keeping keeping uh, sort of, you know, nuclear energy um, on, a, um, on a on a safe platform or as least as safe as they can be, they're actually holding a three day summer course on world nuclear uh, energy at the World Nuclear University uh, in Uttar Pradesh. On there, three days on there, mm-hmm. mostly for mostly being run there for uh, for government employees, students in nuclear physics, employees of nuclear research organisations. A lot of people there will be going to Mongolia, obviously to go and hear about this. Mm-hmm. On there, if you want to apply for it, the dates uh, certainly July seven through nine on there, and uh, we can uh, we can put the, uh, the the URL up on the on the website later for anyone keen to to get there if they're in that part of the world. On there. You will, of course, just like on the customs and immigration forms where you're asked, you know, are you now or have you ever been a terrorist uh, or a <laughs> member of a terrorist agency mm. on there, you will have to actually sign that out. So obviously they're not going to be sort of going to falling for, for that. Very high levels of security yeah. to, get, to get into uh, to, to such, a, such a, a wonderful seminar. So that's, that's the Monami uh, Research Facility right. associated with the World Nuclear University in Mongolia. Yeah. Mm. on there. So a lot of people very interested in, in getting to that one. Now, I'm sure a lot of you also would have uh, been, been aware, you might have been aware, that uh, uh, before the global financial crisis, uh, that uh, Ireland, of all places, we sort of had a nice Irish theme earlier today. Oh, mm. did we? Oh, I think we, I missed we, that. We did indeed. We did indeed. <laughs> on there. Well, this one, this one picks up the story uh, from, <laughs> from that part of the world on there. Now, one of the things which certainly had the Irish economy kicking along sort of b- before the global financial uh, crisis was they had uh, very good tax breaks for IT, software development, and, uh, and related, uh, related um, you know, technological innovation. So much so that uh, a Boston, uh, Boston scientific uh, instrument development company had in fact headquartered or moved some of their development agencies over to Ireland. They had some in the, uh, the port of Galway. Uh, they had some not too much further away in Tipperary, uh, apparently, it's not not a very long long way to Tipperary. Um, <laughs> on there, they had seven hundred people working there, and of course, they had uh, fifteen hundred people uh, bobbing around in Cork uh, working for them <laughs> oh, as well. <laughs> on there, as a result of the the global global financial uh, crisis, of course, a lot of a lot of uh, R and D work uh, certainly went went by the wayside, and certainly in Ireland it did. So, a lot of these clever boffins were left around with a lot of time on their hands. Now, a lot of you folk, um, I'm sure you've you've heard of smartphones, haven't you, Brod? Yes. On yeah. there, Rachel, you've heard <laughs> yeah, of smartphones. Yeah, I may have once or on twice. Yeah. yeah. So sort of, I think Australia's 50% uptake and, and climbing on there, and uh, they suffer in in Ireland from exactly the same problems that we have here, and that's sort of you know wireless reception uh, on here, and that you know the phone will dial, you put it next to your head on there, and the damn call falls out. At least <laughs> if you're with my carrier, it will. 
uh, on there. Well, these guys had the same problem in Ireland, and they were they were thinking about this being a biomedical company on there as to whether or not this was something which they could actually use to go and determine the risks from from wireless radio wave exposure. What these clever guys did, though, is in fact they turned the idea around, and they've in fact now come up with the inverse of a killer app. For the, for the iPhone on there. <laughs> it's in fact going the other way. It's actually helping save, save lives. They're now actually using the absorption of the wireless radiation from the iPhones, using a pair of iPhones, opposite sides of the, the organ, the head yeah. at the moment on there, and actually using one to beam to the other and monitoring the, monitoring the signal strength of the two as they actually move the phones around the head and are developing imaging, low res at the moment, but it used to be fairly poor for MRI, now just in a wireless iPhone app on there. On there. Wow. Apparently, apparently it doesn't work on Androids. Um, on there, the, 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 metal, the metal screening on their heads. No, that's, no, that stops all the waves coming through <laughs> uh, on there. So that, that work being, being done with the Boston Scientific, um, uh, what are they called? The Boston Scientific Research Development Innovation Agency uh, on there in those, the ports of Galway and Tipperary on there. All very, all very interesting. Mm. Back to Mongolia. <laughs> <laughs> on there, because you can't, you can't, you can't get enough of central, central highland uh, Asia. Uh, mm. I, I don't think. No. On there, so I think, I think some people will have heard um, uh, one of the stories breaking this week about uh, finding another early hominid, um, sort of in the same, same uh, area, same time as, as Lucy. They, they think at the moment. Which looks as if, in fact, its uh, feet were in fact fairly prehensile, or remained fairly prehensile, and still were able to to probably spend a lot of time in trees. Okay. So you know, contemporary with with Lucy, more or less. Well, here's a here's a news story coming out from back in in Mongolia and uh, and Tuva. On there, one of the the big mountain ranges uh, over there is the Altai uh, mountain ranges, and those of you keen on folk folk uh, singing from that part of the world, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of the the throat singing of that, and who isn't. I <laughs> uh, would, would would know of Alti Hungai uh, on there, one of the one of the big bands from from that part of the world. Uh, they have that particularly uh, devastating um, sort of tonal throat singing on there, which you know, some people find interesting and some people find very hard to take on there. <laughs> so this is this is the Altai Ranges from from that part of part of the world, and they've recently found what they think is the fingertip of a young girl hominid uh, from from that area, and. A lot of the, the DNA um, uh, evidence these days is actually being uh, worked on at the uh, Max Planck Institute in Germany where they've got some speciality in doing ancient DNA reconstruction. They, they originally sent these, these fragments over there to be, to be analysed and when they came back they were somewhat surprised at the, the, the mitochondrial DNA they indicated that the hominid that they were dealing with was probably twice as distant from us as Neanderthals were but that the dating on that put them to be contemporaneous with other Neanderthal groups uh, within, within that part of the world on there. So they've got a new, um, a new homo, effectively, has been sort of coined uh, for, for that part of the world, and it's a homo altiensis on there, so the, the, the Altai mountain uh, homo on there, and they've found um, uh, indications of technological development that, uh, that coexisted at the time of, of both... Uh, the early early crow uh, crow magman and uh, the uh, the Neanderthals in in that part of the part of the world. So particularly interesting. One of the things which this actually sheds shed some interesting light on it was in fact whether or not the Homo altiensis on there might in fact have been around within oral memory on there, and being that much more primitive might in fact have generated the the beginnings of the stories of the abominable snowman uh, on there. On there, so perhaps this isn't the minky, missing link. That this is actually the, the yeti, and the abominable <laughs> snowman. To to that point, one of the one of the collectors of folk stories within that part of the world, a guy called uh, Van Dusing. In um, this isn't the vampire guy, um, <laughs> distant relative, um, went through and collected stories, folk stories in that part of the world. Uh, and there is uh, here. I'll just sort of read read this. This is a, a short um, translation from from a piece from the Tungus people who were in that part of the world. you remember that the sort of Tunguskan forest explosion, same, same sort of area. So they, they get all the good stuff, obviously, <laughs> in that part of the world. One of the, the folk tales describes these monkeys that once abducted uh, a man. It says, So the older sister took the shaman's drum. She started to sing and then said, Brother, when you go hunting in the Tiaga tomorrow, you're going to meet two people. Check out their breasts and then marry them. 
It's a standard kind of folk, folk tale. As you do. As you would. Yeah. There. The next day he woke up and set out to go hunking, hunting. Um, he walked and walked until he came to a hill, a mountain, and there were big rocks. He looked up and then went on. Suddenly he saw two people sitting there and he approached them, and at that time um, the ties on his skis broke. He came up to those people and felt their breasts, and they were women. And they, <laughs> you know, it's a folk story. And they took him along with them. At home, time went by, as day passed another, and still he was gone. Many days went by, and then the younger sister said, Sister, you have made this happen, now you must bring him back. These two monkeys in the mountains came and took him away, and now they are keeping him in the mountains, sucking his blood. Mm. He's become just skin and bone. So the younger sister sang and sang and drummed, flying to her spirits, and she couldn't get there. She tried a second time and still didn't have the strength. The third time she gathered all of her strength and flew to the rocks. She took her brother and dragged him out of there. He flew, looking thin as a shirt. They got him back and healed him. And that's how the younger sister brought her brother back from his monkeys. So this is sort of, you know, a folk, folk stories collected in sort of, you know, 2000 that were certainly, certainly predating that. So I'm sort of thinking that's an indication both of a, of a couple of things. One is these are the origin of the abominable snowmen and the Yeti stories. And I also think it's probably one of the reasons that the throat singing actually developed in the first place on there, that kind of noise would probably be enough to go and actually keep keep uh, keep the Homo altiensis away from the, the invading Neanderthals. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it's a security system. Right. Mm. That's mm. so elaborate. I'm, I'm having trouble poking <laughs> holes in it. You, yeah. you, you've either made up a brilliant folk story there that ties in perfectly to, to bring it all together <laughs> as though there's these monkey-like creatures, or it's just all one brilliant story yes. in general. Um, I was going to say for the viewers as well, and uh, me. Can you remind me, Lucy? How old is Lucy, and where was she? Uh, you've got me there. Oh. I'm not not good on my dates. Oh, yeah. that's right. Uh, but uh, yeah, she was. Um, she I she spoke. certainly predates. She she predates this. So this yeah. this is Lucy. I was just saying that oh, yeah. we've got this interesting um, uh, cohabitation, as it were, both mm. of Lucy and the different line, which is this recently discovered um, prehensile um, uh, sort of you know. Version, yeah, within Africa. Mm, very so. interesting. I do remember there was a story like this, uh, probably last year or the year before, or something, when they found a finger bone in. I thought it was Indonesia though, and they were very skeptical about whether it was genuine or not. It's very hard to tell. You've got a whole person from just the one bone, but then the DNA Max Planck Institute. Good names in there. Mm. Um, hmm. See, I was thinking. Uh, so that was that story. What are you thinking for that story, Rod? For the the, the, the bones one, bones yeah. Bones. Well, I've just found Lucy's estimated to be about three point two million years old. Um, so that's when she was around. I mean, it, look, it sounds, it sounds, it almost sounds too good to be true. The pieces fit too well together. Yes. Into that story, I'm I'm I'm, I'm skeptical of that one. Mind you, the the Irish invention back there, that was terrible. Oh, um, the Irish one. I think you did that just so you could say bobbing and cork. <laughs> bobbing and cork and the <laughs> Galloway pork. Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, look, I mean, yeah, is this another one of those you know Irish inventions like air conditioning on a motorcycle and the fly screen door <laughs> and a submarine and all those sorts of ones that you're, you're just making this up again? Or? It's a good idea, though, but, yeah, I don't have much trust in that one either, mm. I'm afraid. Mind you, I will give you Boston Scientific Instruments is a proper scientific instrument mm. um, place. Yep. So you've done your research if you are making up the story there. And they do have good tax breaks in Ireland. Yeah, they, absolutely. Yeah. Right. right. And that brings us to number one, which was, of course, the Monami Nuclear Institute. The, Mon- the, Monami. <laughs> the Monami. The Monami Research Centre. Yeah, in, in Mongolia. Mongolia. Yeah. Well, you did say there was a URL that you would put up on the website. Sure, you can put anything on the web. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, with the lengths you went to for that folk story, I wouldn't be surprised if you'd made a website for this <laughs> institute too. Mm. <laughs> but we are going to... Um, does that include throat singing at the um, the conference I think that, there? I think, I think that's, they would almost certainly have that as one of the cultural yeah. pursuits, if not one of the reactor cooling methods. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, they have been talking a lot on nuclear energy at the moment, and then there is a conference coming up. This is whether it is Monami or... Is it Monami? Monami in Mongolia. Do they speak French in Mongolia? No. Je ne sais pas. Right, well, we're going to have to pick one here, Rachel. Um yeah, where are you going to go? Well, um, as appealing as um, the uh, the Yeti is, um, I might I might go the nuclear energy. 
is the what is the is the true one the true one all right well i'm i'm again gonna steer away from the yeti it just it's too, fits together too i'm gonna regret it if it is the yeti <laughs> but I'm, I'm gonna go with the irish the irish, uh, irish anti-killer app anti-killer app you're yeah. holding those iphones around an image in each Ooh. other and um you're going to have to tell us which one's right, Stuart. Yeah, actually, because it's uh, April Fool's Day, of course, not just one of those is is right uh, uh, on there. There are two of them that are right on there. Uh, no. Prank, prank on a prank on a prank. <laughs> so um, uh, prepare to be ashamed, bro. The uh, and uh, and Rachel, no, the um, uh, the Yeti's real. Oh, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> on there, well, certainly, certainly, the discovery of Homo altiensis is is real. Wow. Uh, on well, there. that's so, really interesting. So three, three, three types of hominid cohabiting uh, mm. in that part of the world seems wow. to be the story at the moment, or more or less cohabiting. There's with this. So interesting there. And uh, yeah, Zamonami, uh, she is real. She is real. Oh, well, so book I, your, I'm completely out there. Book, <laughs> your, book your tickets uh, three days in Mongolia to talk nuclear physics. Mm, on wow. that, but, yeah, don't be a terrorist. That's right. And you can watch the, <laughs> the, gents, the gents standing around the, the cooling system. Just oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you that's, you don't. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> You say you don't like it, and yet you've obviously been practicing. Uh, you've got you've got to know your enemies, <laughs> <laughs> or use it against your enemies. Um, <laughs> what are the two? All right. Well, look, the time is one twenty-five, which means we've only got five minutes left in this show. <gasps> and do you reckon you can do your three stories in five minutes, Rachel? Of course, I can. All right. Yep. Well, let's do it. All right. Last three stories. <clears throat> And we'll see whether Rachel's fooling us too. But oh. at least one's true, I hope. <laughs> well, I can change that. All right. Okay. So my first story is a discovery um, using uh, NASA's um, scene. Uh, they use their solar dynamic observatory satellite, which looks at the sun, and they've actually observed a tornado on the surface of the sun that's the size of the Earth. So it's a tornado that's the entire size of the Earth. Um, it's the So it's a twisting column of superheated gases, from about 50,000 degrees Celsius to 1.7 million degrees Celsius. And the wind speeds of this are about um, almost 2,000 times the tornado speed of Earth. So on Earth, um, I've got 100 miles per hour. Yeah, it could be a couple yeah, hundred in a Yeah, tornado. a couple That's hundred. It. So this is quite quite a bit faster. And so this, uh, this is from coronal mass ejection. So huge eruptions of charged particles on the surface of the sun just get whipped up in all their heated convection currents. And yeah, so it's been spotted and filmed. And so that's my first story. Okay. Yep. Right. So the second one. Second one is um, a study that's been published recently in the PLOS Genetics Journal uh, from University of Georgia students. And um, they've been looking at sunflowers and they've observed uh, Vincent van Gogh's painting of sunflowers and wanted to know what makes the variations in the sunflowers? Because in his painting, you've got a normal sunflower, but then you've got these uh, bushy, more, much more bushy sunflowers that are called the teddy bear sunflower. And they were looking at what um, genetics occur in that. And so they came up, they screened hundreds of varieties of sunflowers, wildflowers, double-flowered, and tubular, which is the, the bushy kind of one. And they found that uh, the, it's the gene called HACYC2C gene. Yep. Um, and that you just pulled a whole lot of random letters together to make that one, didn't you? Oh, who knows? <laughs> Science by Scrabble. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and uh, so the but the genetic so the mutation is in that gene for the teddy bear flowers in uh, Vincent van Gogh's paintings. So they've been wanting to know what's the variations that you know Vincent van Gogh in the mutations in the flowers that Vincent van Gogh was looking at a hundred years ago, and finding out if the same if uh, what the genetic code is for all that. So that's that story. And my last one is about, recently there was the International Telecommunication Union Conference. They were just trying to decide whether to keep the leap second or let it go. And they've actually decided to let the, uh, let the leap second go. So uh, the US argued that um, the leap seconds were causing problems for communication and navigation systems. And the UK said that long-term consequences were great. Uh, a leap second comes about because um, the Earth wobbles a bit as it spins on its axis, so some days end up being a few milliseconds longer than another. And the next leap second was due to be added on the 13th, 30th of June, sorry, 2012, so this year, so they had the conference. But the US doesn't like it, and the UK does, um, but, yeah, they've decided to let it go. So that means in 500 years, um, you know, we'll be a day off, the calendars will be a day off the Earth's rotation, 1,000 years will be, like, years off, so... 
Yeah, mm. so that's my third story. Discussed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, the leap second one seems a bit odd. I, I never knew they were actually adding leap seconds until recently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know that they have let it go, though. Okay. That's, you reckon that's, it's still around? Yeah. Not there. Even the Americans can be a bit funny about those sort of things. But <laughs> like, it just makes it too difficult. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, yeah, so the teddy bear flowers. I, I, I thought... Uh, the variation in those paintings was mostly due to absinthe. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> and the clumsiness of his hand. Yeah. yeah. On there. I have seen the, the sunflowers in your backyard, Rachel, and they do look a bit mutated. Oh, so mutated. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's a possibility. It's probably cabbage from the Chico Rolls left over. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, just discarded out the back window and mutating the garden. Mm. I, reckon, I reckon that's the, um, I reckon it's the solar, solar tornadoes of the well, I was going to ask, how big is the sun relative to Earth? Is oh, hundreds it? of times in terms of diameter. Okay, yeah. so really a, big. an Earth-sized tornado on the sun wouldn't be that big a deal. Mm, yeah, really. I think you know, oh, I think okay. it could happen. Yeah. All right. So you're, you're settled on that one, are you, Stuart? So which one's the true one? I think it's the solar tornadoes. All right. Well, I'm going to go with the sunflowers because I've seen it's kind of a solar the sunflowers theme. in the Rachel's backyard. So yeah, I'm going to go with the mutated sunflowers. Okay. Well, all right. So you ready? Now I was going to try and do the April Fools and be like, <laughs> two of them are true. Um, uh, okay. So they're all true in part. <laughs> April Fools. Um, <laughs> the sunflower one is the one that was perfectly true. So right. Good work. Um, just the fact they're actually, they looked at a painting and went, oh, let's study those flowers. Um, uh, I really like in that story. Uh, so in that one, all, all the evidence tells us that the mutation they've identified is the same one that Vince Van Gogh captured in the 1800s. So that was part of that research. Uh, well, I'll go to the solar one. So very good. It's actually, the, the tornado is actually five times the size of the Earth. So oh. other than that, oh. it was true. <laughs> so the smaller so, ones are the size of the Earth, yeah. 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 They saw one <laughs> <laughs> and they, well, that was, uh, the, the importance of this one is that it was the first one ever filmed. So, oh, I missed that bit. Yeah. Yeah. That was, <laughs> so that's the importance of the story. It was the first one ever filmed. Uh, they've just filmed a second one as well. That is, um, it's much smaller. Uh, <laughs> about, about, about the size of the earth, yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. No, it's, uh, yeah. yeah Why isn't uh, this sorry. research up to date? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was the first one ever captured, and it was, it's five times the size of the earth. Okay, so, so we're going to combine your stories with Brods from the film, and we're going to have a, a remake of Twister with uh, with Helen. Ooh. Helen Hunt? Yep. Yeah, yeah. sounds good. I think so. Sounds good. And the leap second one, uh, they've deferred the decision. So <laughs> Buy that a leap second. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they're going to adjourn the meeting until 2015. Right. So, oh, so I'm assuming we're still going to have our leap second on the 30th of June, 2012. Yeah. Let's have the party. So if you haven't put your clocks back an hour today, you can only put them, you can put them back 59 minutes and 59 Five seconds on, on that day, yeah. and you'll be fine. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> All right, listeners, well, I hope we fooled you a little bit today and you had some fun with us talking about our science stories. I certainly had fun making up some science for a change, which is good. Yeah. Generally, we try and be factual on this show. <laughs> um, and it's been an absolute pleasure having uh, my two guests in the studio. So thanks very much for coming along, Rachel. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Stuart. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say that in a throat singing voice? Uh, not, not, on, uh, not on this microphone. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might leave it there, listeners. And join us again next week, same time, same place, for a bit of a more normal episode of Fuzzy Logic.